Welcome to First Baptist Church of Terrytown, sharing God's love and hope around the world. Our prayer is that your life is transformed as you hear the Word of God preached today. Okay, so this sermon's a little bit different. The sermon has a prelude, so just think about like when you go to see a Star Wars movie, there's going to be a lot of exposition that you have to read, right? I'm sure the first people who went to the Star Wars movie were like, I'm at a movie. I didn't come to a movie to read, but here we are. So, <laughs> so we'll go into the sermon proper in a second, but there, there's got, there has to be a little bit of uh, explanation here. There is nothing in the Bible so far that has prepared us for Daniel chapter 7. There's nothing in Daniel chapter 7 that prepared us for, or in the book of Daniel to prepare us for chapter 7, and there's nothing in the entirety of the Old Testament. If you're just reading along in the Bible, all of a sudden you get to Daniel chapter 7, you go, what's happening? And the book doesn't prepare us for it because we get six well-crafted, highly stylized narrative stories, and we're like, these are fantastic stories. And in fact, in children's ministries all around the world, throughout centuries, they'll teach the book of Daniel to their children until they get to chapter 7. And then, then we're like, all right, move on to something else. There is nothing in the Bible up to this point that has prepared us for Daniel 7. Because Daniel 7 is a particular type of literary genre that simply didn't exist before and doesn't really exist right now. It's a genre called apocalypse literature, and it only existed for about eh, four to six hundred years where people were writing in it. I know we use that term now, but the word apocalypse means a revealing of things. Uh, in fact, in some Bibles and translations, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, will sometimes be called the book of the apocalypse of the Apostle John or St. John. And that's a good translation of it because an apocalypse is a revealing of deep spiritual truths. Uh, I know we use the word to mean like post-apocalyptic zombie movies, and that's, that's not what apocalypse is about. An apocalypse is a story that takes metaphors and images in order to convey deep spiritual truth. But they are highly specific images, colors, sounds, numbers, uh, to convey deep spiritual truths. The images that we see convey deeper truths. We don't have any kind of genre like that today. Uh, the, the only thing similar that we have would be an allegory. So if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, uh, that that is a good, an okay example. That's the closest thing we have. Uh, or uh, my favorite thing in the world, uh, at least my favorite long-form poem, is a book called Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. And in here, you have Red Cross Knight, and he's on a journey. And that's why I'm wearing the shirt, actually. This is a picture of one of the dragons from Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. And Red Cross Knight, he comes across this dragon, and the dragon, of course, is named error. And so he fights the dragon, kills the dragon. When the dragon dies, uh, all of these books and parchments come out of it, and it represents all of the erroneous things that we read and change our minds uh, and uh, change our souls. Uh, So we don't really have a good analogy for what this is, but I'll walk you along through it as we go through, and we'll see it for the rest of Daniel for the next few weeks. It's all apocalyptic literature. So highly stylized, highly metaphoric, highly symbolic in order to convey deep spiritual truths. That's what we're looking at there. And by the way, I appreciate it. A lot of you have been like, whoa, that's quite the shirt. Um, What's going on? I said, yeah, I'm going to wear the shirt just 
you know, today so that I could have a visual to say this, this image in Edmund Spencer's A Fairy Queen represented error. And in the same way, Daniel uses images to represent spiritual truths. Uh, actually, the best comment I got was from Steve, who said, you look like you're from Miami Vice. So, <laughs> and I appreciated that. <laughs> but, uh, but we're in Daniel chapter 7. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for bringing us here today so that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray, Father, as we go into a genre of literature that no one writes in anymore, that is uh, sometimes difficult to understand that, Father, you will help us to see your truths, see your deep spiritual truths, and that you'll transform us and in turn transform the culture around us. I pray that I will decrease, that Christ will increase. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can wrestle with your word together. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Okay, so we're in Daniel chapter 7. Before we jump into that, I want to ask you a question. What makes a bad leader a bad leader? So what are the, and no names. We're not going down that route. (laughs) What makes a bad leader a bad leader? No followers. (laughs) You're just out for a walk. (laughs) What else? dictatorial. You're going to do this and I'm going to tell you, right? Like, then you're eventually going to have no followers, right? Good. What else? Egocentric. Egocentric, right? It's all about me. Narcissists, it's all about me. And this company exists to make me money or for my own personal glory and everything. I heard someone else over here. Personal agendas, yes. Yeah, perfect, right? They're, uh, they're not here to serve, which as Christian, we understand that leaders and any power and authority Christians have, it is for the sole purpose of turning around and serving others, right? Which is not the way the world uses it. It's not to have our own agenda. It's to serve others, right? Perfect. What else? Ah, leader doesn't delegate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's all about making me look good, the leader, not you, right? They don't delegate. They don't allow anyone else to grow. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Misguidance? In what way? Oh, okay. So they won't even listen to other... Yeah, they misguide you. They, 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 they take you down the wrong path, and they won't listen, I assume, to any, anyone else's <laughs> protests. This is not a good idea, right? Yeah, what else? Oppressive. Uh, anyone ever have an oppressive boss before? Uh, anyone currently? No, don't, don't out yourself. Um, actually, Barbara's not here. Anyone have an oppressive boss right now? <laughs> oh, they, they're isolated. They don't even know the people they're leading. Right, yeah. There's different kinds of power, right? There's, there's positional power and authority. And, and that's, you know, you do this because I'm telling you to do this, right? And you have to do it. Um, that's a weaker form of power. A, a stronger form of power is relational power, right? Like I have the least amount of power of anyone at this church because I've only been here for four months. You who've been here for a, a, an amount of time, the, the incredible, I mean, I have positional authority and power. That's not worth anything compared to relational power and authority. Uh, it really is. That's why uh, it's often said that the, the most powerful person in the church is the church secretary. Right? They're the ones answering the phones. They, they, they know everything happening before, uh, before anybody else. 
Yeah. It's interesting. All, anyone else had anything that they were burning desire that they had to get out about bad leaders? We have bad leaders all around, right? They can be politicians. Uh, they can be uh, bosses. Uh, they can be uh, in our own households. They can be teachers, right? Just because you have a bad leader. Oh, they could be uh, um, uh, police people or the FBI. That's not saying all police or all FBI. Or, but, but there are people who abuse their power. Uh, it, it, it's And churches, oh my goodness, we have churches, right? Bad pastors and bad leaders and immoral. And most of everything that you guys said is interesting wasn't, uh, wasn't, wasn't skills-based, like, oh, it makes a bad leader a bad leader. Well, you know, he's not the most organized, right? And that is a problem for sure. But most of the things you jumped to were moral issues, and that is hard. It's hard to deal with when it's at your work. It's hard to deal with if it's in your home. It's hard to deal with if it's in your school. It's hard to deal with if it's in your country. What does God want us to do when we have bad leaders. Moreover than that, God, in Daniel chapter 7, as we're about to see, over and over and over again, we see it through the scriptures, he warns us that there will be a regular cycle of evil leaders that we believers have to face. Why does he do that? Why does God warn us about the regular cycle of evil leadership that we as followers of Christ are going to face? So as we continue our journey through Daniel, Daniel actually jumps back in time. So he arranged his book where all the narratives were at the beginning, and now he jumps back in time. So the last story we saw, Persia was in control, and now it jumps back in time where Babylon is still in control. It's about to be laid siege by Persia, but Belshazzar is king. Sort of. I mean, there was no official coronation. Everyone calls him king. The rightful king left. This is now his son. The king is in control. And, uh, and from all intents and purposes, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was a psychopath, but he was good to the Jewish people, the people that were in exile. And so now Belshazzar comes into power. He's not a good man. He's a murderer. He is a liar. He is an assassin. He is not good to the Jewish people. And so God's people are here in exile saying, what's going to happen to us? I'm so scared. And that's the context of what happens in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 verse 1. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold the four winds of heaven were stirred up by the great sea and the four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. Another. The first was a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, 
before which three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So this is a terrifying image he has. He says he sees the sea and these creatures come out of the sea. And in our minds, you know, the sea and the ocean are positive things. You get to go and go on vacation and go swimming and, you know, burn your body in the sun uh, on the beach. But but in, in the ancient days, the sea was a negative. That is where people drowned. Uh, that is where you would have to go out to fish so that you could survive, but people often didn't come back and you didn't know what happened to them. Uh, the sea is a churning mass of chaos where the, the storms of, of winter would come. The sea is this mass chaos where the, the horrifying creatures like Leviathan would rise out of. In ancient Near East literature, the, the sea is the, the, the home, the realm of all the demonic and all the evil. And these creatures come out of it. We'll get into the translation in a, in a little bit, but... I want to focus on what Daniel was feeling. If you go to uh, a number of artists, uh, you'll, you'll find all these things. This is from uh, the uh, Action Bible. Uh, but, but you can find all sorts of depictions of all these. And generally, the first three look the same. You got this lion, and it's, it's coming out of the ocean. You got the bear with the ribs. And, uh, and then you have the leopard with, uh, with four heads and all these wings. And okay, that's uh, pretty much all the depictions are going to be the same. But if you get to the fourth creature and you look up at books or you, you look at, uh, you go Google it, what's the fourth creature in Daniel 7, they're all going to look the same because in Hebrew, it, it, it's hard to translate. It just says this thing comes up. And the most he can describe it is it's got these jaws. It's got these, these iron jaws, these teeth. That's it. And it's not that Daniel lacked the imagination to describe the horror of what he saw. It's that everyone lacks the imagination to describe the horror of what he saw. He's terrified as he wakes up from this dream. We've, uh, we've experienced that kind of terror before in our lives. I don't know about you, but there have been a number of times in my life I wake up the morning after a large election and the wrong person won. And I just feel terrified. What's going to happen? What, what's going on? How are we going to get this through? Maybe a loved one gets a medical diagnosis that's terminal. You feel that terror before? That's just, that's what Daniel's feeling. Or you think about the... Uh, the church in Afghanistan that has had such a hard time of establishing itself and maintaining it and being faithful to Jesus and surviving. And then as the Taliban rolls into city after city after city, that's the kind of terror Daniel is feeling. But, oh, sorry. But then it gets better and it gets worse. Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A steam of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. So 
God shows up. Okay, great. Yeah, God shows up. Except it's terrifying. So Daniel's seeing these, these, these creatures. It's all scary. And now all of a sudden, God is holding court for the entire world. Not just for these creatures, but for everyone. And it's terrifying because, I don't know if you've, some of you have been to court before. I can probably been to court a few times if you're in law. But, but if, you've, if you've never been in court before, it can be a terrifying experience. Even if you're not the one on trial, it can be terrifying. Now imagine if you go to the court and they say, okay, here's our case against you. And they open up a book. They have a book the size of a Bible, right? Just clunk. And they have all these documents. This is our case against you. Imagine the terror. Whoa, we're in trouble. And not only that, but then around the judge's seat is a pit of fire with flames coming up out of it. (gasps) That's terrifying. And not only that, but as you go to your court date, there are, it says, 10,000 times 10,000 of the angels around God in his throne. So imagine 10,000 times 10,000. I think that's 100 million. Officers in riot gear surrounding you. That's how dangerous you are. It's scary. It's terrifying. For, for Daniel, it's kind of like, not that this has ever happened, but just imagine. Imagine there is a teenager, his parents go away for the weekend, and the teenager says, I'm going to have an original thought. No one's ever had this thought before in my mind. I'm going to hold a party at my parents' house while they're gone, right? I know this doesn't happen in real life, but, but just, just, just work with me here. So <laughs> he has a party, invites some friends. Those friends invite more friends. Those friends invite more friends. And suddenly there's people in the house that, that he's never met before. And the party, oh my goodness, it gets out of hand, right? So oh, his stuff's starting to get broke. So he's like, guys, stop it. Knock it off. Uh, oh, get out of my parents' room, ah, right? He's saying all this stuff. No one's listening. They don't care. They're drunk. They're half drunk. They're twice drunk. Everybody's drunk, right? Things are chaos. It's madness. And then finally the police show up. And what is that teenager feeling? Oh, thank goodness the police are here. Oh no, the police are here. Simultaneously, both of those emotions are running through his mind. That's what Daniel's like. Oh, thank goodness God is here. God has shown up. He's going he's gonna to put an end to these terrifying beasts, but oh my goodness, he's judging the whole earth at the same time. <gasps> thank goodness God's here. Oh no, God's here. And he's sitting in his throne and oh, fire. In apocalyptic literature, fire is always a symbol of God's justice, his judgment. And I'm sure Daniel in his vision of the night, heart pounding in his chest, sweat pouring out of his body, says, who can stand in the face of God? But then someone else shows up. Verse 11 says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. You know, the little horn from the fourth creature. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is Jesus We understand from the New Testament. We understand from the book of Revelation. This is King Jesus showing up, our great advocate who stands before the throne. Yes, there is a pile high of our sins. But for those who have trusted Jesus, believe that he died for their sins and rose again, there is no condemnation. Jesus, our advocate, took our sins upon us. They're scattered to the wind and remembered no more. Jesus shows up. Wow, what great hope. I mean, imagine the hope Daniel's having as he's experiencing this. This is, this is like if you went to the doctor and the doctor gave you a, oh, like a stage four cancer diagnosis. Get your affairs in order. You're going to die. And you're like, oh my goodness. Ah, right. And then, then a few days later, you get a call up and say, hey, we're sorry. We got, we, we got the, 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 the test results mixed up. You don't have cancer. You're not going to die. Oh, thank God. You just need to eat more fiber. <sighs> Probably not going to happen. But still, <laughs> oh, thank goodness. The relief that you feel. I thought I was going to die, and now I'm not. Wow. I don't know your personal finances. Don't want to know your personal finances. But I'd venture to guess if you racked up $90,000 worth of medical debt, you would not be able to pay that off immediately. I know I would not, right? It, it, is, it is horrifying to have debt, especially medical debt, just pile up and grow and grow. Can you imagine having that and saying, I don't know how we're going to pay this. What are we going to do? Then can you imagine the relief if you got a letter in the mail that says, hey, your debt has been canceled. It's been forgiven. That actually happened in northern Michigan. In our association of churches, we gathered together. We worked with an organization that buys up medical debt. And, uh, and we bought a whole bunch of medical that I think it was like $1.2 million worth of medical debt in our area, and we forgave it. Uh, we forgave it. Can you imagine being the person getting that thing, that the letter in the mail, $90,000 has been forgiven to you in the name of Jesus. Wow. That's the relief Daniel is feeling. That's the hope he has. But Daniel wants answers, just like the rest of us. What is this all about? As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious in the vi- verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was within me and was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Yeah, and that term saint uh, in the Old Testament in some translations, and the New Testament sometimes it's called the holy ones, uh, but it's saints, it's God's people, it's not angels, it's human beings. It's the same in the Old Testament as in the New Testament, people who've chosen to trust God. We're saved by faith. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. So the, the angel presumably tells Daniel what this all meant, and it goes right back to the, the vision Daniel had all the way back in Daniel chapter 2. And so, just because I'm more of a visual thinker, if you remember the Colossus statue that King Nebuchadnezzar uh, dreamed about initially, um, the first one was Babylon, and then we have this lion, Babylon, that makes sense. Uh, and then when you get to the shoulder area, the Medo-Persian 
empire, that's the bear. Uh, then you uh, get down to the midsection, Greece, which was the leopard with, with the four heads and the, the four wings. And that makes sense because if you, you know your history and Alexander the Great, I mean, he conquered the known world so fast. It was, it was like the speed of a leopard with booster jets on the back, right? And then you get to Rome, which is this beast. And again, if you know your history, I mean, it has these, and, and, and it makes sense too with the, uh, you know, Rome is, is this solid thing, but then it has the, the clay worked into it. Rome became, as it conquered people, it, it brought a lot of different organizations and people into its fold. But I mean, it makes sense that Rome is this horrible, awful beast with iron teeth that can't be explained. I mean, at one point in the Roman Empire, two-thirds to three-quarters of all the people within its borders were slaves. Three-quarters were slaves. You talk about this creature that gobbles up people and is evil beyond evil. And... It's interesting because the angel presumably tells Daniel, these four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever, right? The Son of Man comes, he brings the kingdom, and we live in the kingdom and enjoy that kingdom forever. Now, here's, what's, here's where the divergence is. I think when we were looking at the Colossus, uh, it's very clear that when the mountain top comes and destroys it. Uh, that is the kingdom of God coming, and we see that in the person of Jesus. But we, all already un- we understand that we have this, this end times understanding of already not yet. The kingdom has come in the person of Jesus. It's already here, and, and he works through all of his people right now, but not yet because it hasn't come fully in power. It hasn't come fully in power. The other thing that we realize is for Daniel, yes, when Jesus comes, these kingdoms will be destroyed. But if you jump back up to verse 12, it says this really weird thing. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So yes, their power is taken away, but I think Daniel is telling us today that there will be a cyclical cycle of evil kingdoms, evil leaders, evil bosses that we will face. And guess what? They don't just come in one variety and flavor. You can't just say, oh, it's Hitler. Ha <laughs> ha, we recognize him. That's not how it works, right? We've got four different flavors of evil leaders. They all do different things. Sometimes you have narcissists. Sometimes you have psychopaths. Sometimes you have incompetent leaders, right? Uh, you have different kinds of evil that we have to contend with, that we face. Why is God warning believers about the regular cycle of evil leaders that we're going to face? And I think Daniel's saying so that we will be confident that we will inherit the kingdom of God if we're faithful. Some of you are here like, that's not enough. So God warns us so that we will be faithful to God. Okay. If you're anything like me, I want to fight. If I see injustice, if I have a boss that's terrible, if, I have, uh, if I'm you know, within a, a church structure that has uh, abuse, I want to fight. I want to fight. I want to fight. I want to be faithful to Jesus. Okay, fine, but I want to fight. I want to fight. Daniel wants to know a little bit more, so he asks one more question. 
Verse 19, then I desired to know the truth about the four beasts, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came, that's God, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and shall be given into his hand for a time, time, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Why is God warning Daniel about this? Why does he warn us about this? I mean, it's very clear, especially retroactively reading the book of Revelation, this, this, this other horn with the teeth and the eyes speaking and blasphemy. This is the Antichrist. Why does God continually warn us about this cycle of, of evil leaders? Well, he says to be faithful. It's so that we will be faithful and inherit this coming kingdom that shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. It's incredible. God chooses in the new heaven and new earth when he finally comes and makes everything right. We rule with Jesus. This isn't about salvation. We've talked about this before, but we will rule with Jesus based on our level of faithfulness. I don't understand what that means. I don't understand how that works, but it's an incredible promise. And Daniel warns us today about this cycle of evil leaders so that when we face them, we will be faithful. Church, the fourth kingdom is alive and well today. The spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well today. According to 1 John 2, the spirit of the Antichrist was in the world then and it is in the world now and will always be in the world until King Jesus comes back and the kingdom comes in power. This kingdom, this fourth kingdom, the, the kingdom of the Antichrist, it works in secret. It wants us to put aside the love of God. It wants us to fight the way the world fights. It wants us to say, I will not tolerate this any longer and to take up arms. It wants us to use the weapons of the world. But guess what? You know what's interesting? You can't fight the Antichrist. You can't. There's a whole movement of Christians. Their number one goal, they say, is to fight the work of the Antichrist. It says it right here. As I looked at this horn, it made war with the saints and prevailed over them. You can't fight the work of the Antichrist. 
We can't. You can't. I can't. The spirit of the Antichrist is alive in the world today. I don't know what it is. And by the way, don't get involved with anyone who's like, let's identify who the Antichrist is. Every election cycle, it's always one or two of the, the presidential candidates. That's the Antichrist. That's the Antichrist. It can't be the Antichrist because the Antichrist is someone that everyone is going to love. Right? It's going to be someone that everyone loves. If half the country hates the person, can't possibly be the Antichrist. The Antichrist will be someone like, and I'm not saying this is the Antichrist, someone like Chris Pratt. Everybody loves Chris Pratt, not the Antichrist, but I'm saying everyone will love this person. It's like, oh, wow, I love Chris Pratt. He's so amazing, right? It'll be someone like Mr. Rogers. No, I'm not saying Mr. Rogers was the Antichrist. He's not. But everyone loves Mr. Rogers. Wow, he's so great. That's when we Christians have to be concerned. Everybody loves this person. Wow we're in trouble. And the easy thing to do, church, is we want to fight. I want to fight. I want to fight the work of the Antichrist. But according to Daniel, it doesn't matter what I do. I can't fight physically. I can't take up arms against and win. I can't try and and do a PR firm and say, hey, the church is great. Hey, follow Jesus. I can't argue my way out of it. I can't spruce our church up enough out of it. I can't do anything except for one thing. Be faithful. In this text today, in the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation, faithfulness equals victory. Victory equals faithfulness. That is how we become winners in the kingdom of God is we are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't take up the tools of this world. Instead, we choose to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now this is the good point where you say, well, what is faithfulness in the face of the fourth kingdom, of the Antichrist? What does faithfulness look like? Well, glad you asked. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So we're going to be faithful to Jesus by loving him, of course. And how do you love him? You keep his commands. Okay, well, what are his commands? You guys know this. Matthew 22, he said, the greatest two commandments are love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. When they fight against us, when when they, they make fun of us, when they say horrible things, guess what? We don't respond in kind. We respond in love. We do unto others as we would have them do unto us, not as they've already done to us. What else? We live by the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul said, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Look, it doesn't mean we don't argue. It doesn't mean we don't raise our voices and say, hey, what's happening right now is wrong. What it does mean is it says when we do argue or when we do point out error or when we do have to correct, we do it with love. We do it with kindness. We do it with gentleness. Not looking at these people like I'm going to crush them, my opponents. Looking at them as lost individuals who are spiritually blind, stepping on our feet over and over again because they don't know any better. They've been blinded by sin, Satan, and the world. They need the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We show them kindness. We show them compassion. Okay, it's going to get harder. Faithfulness in the face of the fourth kingdom. Faithfulness in the face of the Antichrist. Faithfulness equals victory. It's going to get harder. This is where you start wondering if you voted the right guy in. Paul wrote to Timothy, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and those who are in authority. Okay, the crazy thing is, is that Paul wrote this while he was in prison, awaiting to see King Nero. If you know your history, King Nero was the absolute worst. He was, he was 
most certainly uh, someone possessed by the spirit of the Antichrist. This is a man who hated Christians so much, he blamed them for all of his evil deeds that he did, you know, burn down Rome. Oh, Christians did that, right? He, he would take Christians and he would sew them into the dead carcass of an animal and then throw them into the Colosseum and allow predators to rip them apart. He would take Christians and wrap their bodies in wax and light them on fire to be used as party candles for his orgies. And Paul says, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings, King Nero, and all those who are in authority. Okay, petitions, prayers, got it. Intercession, eh. So you're interceding on behalf. Lord, I pray that you help King Nero make good decisions. Eh, I just want him to die, really, right? But no, he says, intercess, intercede for him, right? And, 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 thanksgiving? Thank you that somehow you're going to work through this person? I, I, oh, my goodness. <clears throat> How many of you about, oh, I don't know, four years ago, thanked God that Donald Trump was president? How many of you right now are thanking God that Joe Biden is president? I got everyone. That convicts me. That convicts me. I'm a, I'm a political, well, I'm, I'm a nonpartisan. I'm an avowed nonpartisan. However, because I'm a pastor, I want to be above all of this and be able to speak to all of those things. But man, that convicts me. That convicts me <laughs> hugely. Because he says, for all kings and those who are in authority, give prayer, petitions, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. Wow. Christians were not doing that because the rest of the world would say, that's really weird and bizarre. Why are you guys thanking God for someone 80% of you didn't vote for? Because there's a God in heaven who tells us to. And he's changed our hearts and we're going to change the world through him. Okay, gets harder. Every so often I post this on uh, my social media because, you know, I don't like to sleep at night, apparently. Jesus, these are his words, you have heard it said, love your enemy. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus. And that's in Matthew 5. And I, you know, the words down there are mine. Do you love your political enemies? Right? And oh my goodness, I post this. Maybe I'll go post it today. I posted it recently. I'll go post it again. Why not? It's a fun time. I post it every time. Every time. I have someone saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, but you don't know. But yeah, but, yeah, but you don't know they're, what they're doing, and you don't know what they're doing behind the scenes. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. These are Christians. These are pastors. There's no qualification. You can read the context. There's no qualification. Jesus says, love your enemies. And oh my goodness, for crying out loud, I have enemies, actual enemies, physical flesh and blood enemies that I have met and it is hard to love them. The, the fact that we can't love our political enemies who we didn't vote for, we've never met, they don't know our name, we won't know they don't know that we exist, right? The fact that we can't get over that abstract thought, it, it's crazy. What happens when we face real enemies who've really hurt us and hurt our families? And church, I know it's absolutely impossible to love your enemies. It's a command of Jesus. He commanded us to do it. We can't do it. I have one enemy. Oh my goodness, it keeps coming to mind. And I have the hardest time loving him and praying for him. But I believe we can do it in the power of Jesus when we get on our hands and knees and say, God, I can't do this in my power. 
Help me to love him. Help me to love her. Help me to pray for their good. Thank you for the life that you've given them. I pray that they will be transformed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we fight. This is why God warns us in Daniel chapter 7 today that there will be a regular cycle of evil leaders that we face. You will face them. You're going to face them in the church. You're going to face them outside of the church, in your job place, in your schools. You're going to face them uh, when you're walking down the street. You're going to face them with our political leaders. You're going to see a regular cycle. How do we fight? No, he doesn't tell us this so that we will fight with the weapons of the world. He tells us this so that we will have hope, great hope, that we will inherit the coming kingdom through faithfulness. He tells us this so that we will be faithful. so that we don't fight the way the world fights and that our hopes are set higher than for whatever little amounts of power we can have on this earth. And we trust in the kingdom of Jesus that will be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions will serve and obey him. Keep your eye on the prize. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy for us to get distracted for what us Christians ought to do. We want to use the weapons of this world to fight our battles. We want to use coercion and argumentation and grab onto political power. And you've called us to be faithful. Father, I think that's harder. I think it's harder to show love to people who are unlovable. I think it's hard to show compassion to our enemies. It's hard to be filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and all the rest. While we are being hated or scorned or scared or being fought against, Father, I pray that you'll change us. I pray that you'll change me. Help us to realize that, yes, there there will be an evergreen parade of bad to evil leaders in our lives. But we have a great hope that one day King Jesus will come back and make it right. Help us to be found faithful. Help us to love our enemies, and if not loving our enemies, help us to try to love our enemies, asking you for strength. Help us to pray for those in power and authority. Help us to be uh, believers who, after an election that doesn't go the way we want it to go, we'll say out loud, we'll post on social media, we'll be very public and say, I pray for God's wisdom. I pray for God's grace. I pray with thanksgiving that God is working. Father, this is impossible to do. Enable us through God the Holy Spirit. Change us, mold us, shape us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the church or make an online donation, please visit us at fbctarrytown.org.